Person of Interest Podcast, episode number 27, The Return of Shaw Elias. You are being watched. An artificial intelligence, a machine protected by government agencies and deadly assassins, is spying on you every hour of every day. We designed this podcast as a means to share information that will aid in discovering and exploiting anything related to bringing down those who will use the machine to harm and exploit others. If you're listening to this podcast, your number has come up and you're part of our team. Greetings, people of the interwebs and of Earth. Welcome to the Person of Interest podcast, a fan podcast dedicated to the awesome show called Person of Interest on CBS. I'm Daryl, and despite what you may be thinking, if you're listening or joining us via the live blab, this actually is happening right now. You really are listening to us. This is not a virtual reality simulation. But then that's what you'd say, wouldn't you? Shh, Doug, <laughs> play along. <laughs> and I'm Doug. I am Doug, and I'm hoping that we finally get this right after, you know, 10 billion times or so. So glad to have you with us. Thanks for listening. We're covering Person of Interest for Season 5, Episodes 4 and 5, which originally aired May 16th and 17th, 2016, entitled 6741 and Shotseeker. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And we have this week the writers and the directors for the uh, two episodes we had for 6,741. Mm-hmm. The writers were Lucas O'Connor and Denise Tay. They have some serious POI credentials. Yes. And Denise especially has the reputation of killing off characters. And she, well, did she? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> this Hey, hey, Denise. Hey, yeah. Yeah, how you doing? Listen, episode four, we want to kill some people, and we want to make it awesome, so could you come in and uh, help us write this episode, please? Sure, I'll be right there. <laughs> Click. That's how it went down. <laughs> oh, that's what she does, and they have to kill somebody <laughs> to bring her in. That's right. That's oh, right. She's it, like, um, uh, oh gosh, my my brain just went, who do they call when they need to clean up? Uh, what's her name? Oh, uh, on Blacklist? No, 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 on POI. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Zoe. Oh, it's, yeah. Zoe. Paige Turco, that's the... Yeah. Right? Is she the cleaner? No, I'm thinking of Zoe. Uh, the, uh, they, the they call, she, that's Zoe, the yes, call there we are. Uh, to, yeah, to get cleaned up, yeah. There we go. Yeah. And uh, it was also directed by Chris Fisher, another uh, person with uh, of interest, with person of interest. He's uh, done a lot of directing jobs for mm-hmm. this show. And for Shot Seeker, the writer was Andy Callahan, and the director was... Maja or Maya Vervillo. So there you are. If you can pronounce those, you're great. Yeah. Let's talk about some ratings, speaking of which. You know, last week on Monday, we had a season... Well, I've been keeping track of the ratings since season four, all of season four and five so far. Mm -hmm. Last week's Monday episode was the lowest ever, and by a significant amount. And the Tuesday episode, which was the normal day for it, uh, was back up to... It was, uh, again, it was a low, but it was still two, almost, uh, yeah, two, almost two million million Mm -hmm. viewers more on the Tuesday. So people aren't used to watching this on Monday. What happened this week? The same thing, except worse. 
We had fewer, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had fewer uh, viewers on both days, but the same big jump there. You know, 5.3 million viewers on Monday, 7.1 million viewers on Tuesday, uh, a 0.9 rating on Monday, 1.1 on Tuesday. I am concerned about next week. Now, next week, folks, is the killer. We get three episodes, one on Monday at its usual Monday time, and two on Tuesday starting an hour earlier. My my prediction is that the 9 o'clock showing on Tuesday is going to be even lower than the typical Monday because nobody's expecting the Spanish Inquisition. No, I'm sorry. Nobody's <laughs> expecting POI that day, so, yeah. or that hour, excuse me. They I did at know. the end of the show, they or at the end of the preview, I think. they. Uh, yeah. might have, and I, don't, I don't remember if it was at the end of the preview or at the end of the, the show because there's like a commercial break or a, you know, a lapse between those two where they said, next week. Three new episodes, two big nights, or something like that, and they big, had a big three and a big two that came on the screen. So people were still tuned in when that hit the screen. Then that you know maybe they were like, huh? Oh, okay, let's make a note. But otherwise, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Every week they've also said that you know on, that we've had two days worth of uh, POI. Mm, sure. We've we they've ad- advertised that too, and that hasn't seemed to help a whole lot. Yeah. Well, it's a bummer for sure, and you know, like we said every week, nothing we can do about it. The show isn't coming back. We you know we want, we just hate it because people obviously love the show. There's seven million people watching it on Tuesday, so two million people on Mondays have missed the last two episodes, and that's a pretty big deal, particularly with lost. what we got on this Monday's show. I mean, that was a huge episode to miss. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, some would say, and some did say, uh, especially in the Facebook group that we really didn't move anywhere in this first episode. It was a killer episode as far as the story and the drama goes. But in the end, nothing happened. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, And that's, yeah, we'll talk about that, I guess. I don't want to get ahead either. Well, before we, so way that we can get there, let's follow the next path in our notes. And that is <laughs> our episode ratings. We'll talk about the uh, network episode ratings. Let's talk about our personal episode ratings. You know, after it was all said and done, or immediately after it was all done, I rated it a 10. And then on my rewatch, actually, after I got to thinking about it later on in the night, and then after my rewatch, I brought it down a full point for, for two specific reasons we'll talk about. So I ended up with nine pairs of virtual reality glasses yes and i gave it also nine as well nine trips on a playground roundabout mm-hmm. uh go round to those of us in america yeah exactly um all right and it's not a merry-go-round with the horses it's one of those things you spin around a million times and then you go throw up but you know there you yeah. are well he called throwing up something different too retching retching yeah yes yeah. of course those british guys and their weird words <laughs> speaking of weird words bad wobot gave it 10 body shield orderlies <laughs> Zach Chong, who is in our wonderful live chat, gave it zero dead people. He said, this is one of the worst TV episodes I ever saw. What? Also, that commercial spoils that Reese didn't die. I absolutely hate this episode. So, Zach, I read the whole thing for you. There you are. Yeah. Andrew <laughs> Jeeves gave it, he didn't like it either, but he at least gave it a point. 2.5 points, in fact. 2.5 simulated realities. Linda Beck gave it 10 cranium contorts. Nice. I, I, I had one of those for um, uh, dessert, I think. One of those contorts <laughs> is really nice. And the, I think Indiana contour. Jones had those, too. They were the uh, monkey variety. Uh, <laughs> yes. Scott Drone Silvers gave it 10 kilos of C4 for Greer's favorite chair. 
There you go. Blow you up real good. Mm-hmm. Janae Schoenfeld gave it nine and a half godless churches. That was a very interesting line. Well, I'll talk about that a little later. Yep. Pam Alger gave it five overwrought simulations. Vivek Chowdhury gave it ten USB sticks in the arm. Nice. Um, Carol Dolacek gave it, well, she said, I'm still not able to give it a rating, but together with If Then Else, it's in my top five. Ooh, that's mm, good. Not bad. Mm-hmm. We've got people all over the uh, the spectrum here. Mm-hmm. Like Jerry Chen, who said 10 crazy brainwash simulations. Bill Bluell. Bluell? I think I pronounced that right, Bill. I hope so. Nine pieces of hardware under the skin. You. Benjamin Jensen said eight and a half Samaritans turned into an Atari. Nice. That's going back a ways, too. Uh-huh. Daryl Washington gave it 10 pillow talks. Team Yellowbox gave it 10 returned compact Persians for the actual episode. And the second, he gave it two ratings, or they gave it two ratings, being nine and a half out of 10 spoiled promos for the live viewing. Yep. And the last rating for this episode, Andrew gave it 10 safe places. So yeah, all over the place. It was either really high or really low, um, which yeah. is really interesting, I think. And then, of course... Uh, we've got our ratings for Shot Seeker. Uh, I came up on this one. I was originally a six, and again, we'll talk. I'll probably t- talk about why I came up, but I came up to seven point five missing persons. And I started out with eight, and I kind of dialed it back just a tad, seven and a half to I, I, not to line up with you, but that's you know just the way it turned out. Mm-hmm. Seven and a half freeze dried hard drives i think that's the first time in a long time if ever maybe that you and i've been the same of course we never have two in a row so i I don't i don't know if we've ever really tracked it that way but we were (laughs) the same we ended up with the same on both i Um, will say i've kept track of our ratings all through season four and five so i go back and look have you really i have keep kept stats yes wow i am being watched apparently (laughs) um linda beck gave it 7.5 nerd herds that was a great line Fusco has the best uh, the best lines here. That made me miss Chuck, things. though. That's the thing. You know, they had the nerd herd oh. on Chuck. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Pam Alger said five, I'm sorry, not five, nine ferocious Fuscos. Yeah. Scott Drone Silvers give it 7.5, only mostly dead fan favorites. <laughs> to blade. <laughs> Benjamin Jensen Fire! gave it 10. Helper monkeys. I love that. (laughs) That's good. Helper monkeys. Uh, Let's see. Team Yellowbox gave it 7.5 caged baby ASIs. It sounds cruel. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Caged baby ASIs. Andrew Jeeves gave it eight and a half revelations about Elias. Mm. Bill Bluell gave it 8.25 unhackable files. And... And... (laughs) Finally, Andrew... Gave it nine alert sounds. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like that, I guess. But Yeah, something like that. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion of 6,741. Um, this one, right off the bat, was really intriguing to me with the intro. You had the heartbeat. You see an eyeball. You realize it's Shaw. And it's just like... That's all it took for me to just like, yes, and I'm sucked right in, just hanging on every, you know, every frame of the uh, of the episode from here. 
Well, I wonder how many lost uh, aficionados uh, saw that eye open and was like, oh, my goodness, yeah. it's Jack or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they're, they're apparently installing something in uh, into um, Shaw, and uh, we we get the impression that this is, you know, something they've had her. I guess I'm trying to think how soon we find out that it's been months that they've had her. I don't recall exactly, but uh, but certainly uh, they're they're trying to manipulate her, put something in her uh, uh, chip in her head or something, and then interrogation. You know, uh, th- and this fella seemed to know a lot about her, um, mm-hmm. the playground and going around the merry-go-round and retching. Uh, I think it was being saved by a firefighter, things like that. That he's trying to get her to talk because she's not talking; she's kind of out of it. I don't know if it's the drugs or whatnot that they're keeping her sedated. But they talk about Team Machine, and then she kind of—that's where she gets the uh, impetus to say something. But I just wonder, you know, how it's you know, as we go through this, you know, if you've watched the show already, then um, you know what uh, what the uh, big punchline is. If you haven't, what are you doing listening to the podcast already? Oh my goodness. <laughs> But I'm wondering here, you know, each of these points along the way, we can we can kind of uh, touch on them, where yep. we got clues as to that this was a virtual reality uh, simulation. I didn't notice anything near the beginning other than the fact that maybe you could say we didn't have a real intro. We just had Shaw and, uh, and, and you know, and, and her heartbeat and her getting into uh, uh, or, or waking up into this new reality. Yeah, and I think that it's a little bit debatable as to where the virtual reality started. Did it start from the very first frame of the episode, like you just said? And I think that that's a possibility. You know, when I rewatched, I was looking at that specific thing, trying to figure out when did the simulation begin and or why didn't I realize it from the beginning? Because at the end, you know, you see them pull the virtual reality goggles off and, and whatnot. Well, there's a point after they implant the chip that they put the virtual reality goggles on. You know, they start doing the the room twenty three stuff like they did uh, back in Lost with Carl. But so I thought, oh, that, that we never saw them take them off. I should have seen that, but no, we do. You know, a few minutes later, there it is. They they pull them off, and that's when they start questioning her and all that stuff. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe the moment they put them on is where it begins and the fact that they take them off and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, clearly there it's, it's virtual reality. They never really did pull them off. But the question I guess is, did the simulation begin the moment they put the goggles on or did it happen? You know, was it from the very, very beginning of the episode? I don't know. I don't think it matters, but you know, I'm like you and I'm trying to look for clues and I couldn't find, there were some later on. We picked up on some of them live and I think there's, they're a little bit more obvious when you rewatch, but uh, at this point, no, I couldn't find any clues that this was this was all virtual reality, if you will. Well, she manages to break out, and that's, you know, some people thought, well, you know, that's, it's Shaw. One thing I did notice is that she did seem to be impervious to the sedation medication. You know, yeah. they're pumping her full of it, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, I, what was it, the chair through the glass or the mirror or whatever, it gets out and... Mm-hmm. and, and she does her usual, you know, uh, her moves. I and mean, it's what we've seen, you know, not entirely out of character with her, but she can, you know, all of a sudden she is breaking out of, you know, a Samaritan stronghold, which you would think would be full of cameras. Samaritan knows what's going on, predict, predicting what she's going to do. But she manages to get out. Okay. Did you, you, you had a note here about Sarah Connor. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, the whole the way she broke out reminded me so much of seeing Sarah Connor trying to break out of the mental institution back in Terminator Two. Oh and, yes. And and I in fact I rewatched that scene today just to see if they were as similar as I remembered them being and they were which I didn't take as a rip off I took as if anything as as an homage but uh which was really cool both both of them were filmed great they were written great they were acted great it was action packed camera angles everything I I loved it it was so so good. I do think there are a few clues here. You mentioned the sedation. I mean we do see her get shot in the neck with a with a needle full of sedative and then the next scene you know she's cutting the strap on the wheelchair and uh and breaking loose and it was like man if she'd had sedative put in her neck you know the breaking loose part i can get but after the sedative you wouldn't think that would happen and but i didn't catch that the first time i just didn't think anything of it now when she got to the shoreline and the boat Mm -hmm. was there my first thought was well that was easy and then I thought, well, this is TV. Things like that happen. You know, you kind of have to force things along to tell a story. And then I thought, well, or Samaritan wants her to get out of here. You know, they want to track her or something like that. Um, so, again, yeah. I didn't think too much of it. I thought those were one of the, it was one of those two things. Either Samaritan wanted her to get away or it was just TV being TV. Yeah, I was, I was a little disappointed when, I, when the boat shows up. And, you know, she gets out and the boat happens to be right there. And, you know, it's like, oh, man, are we really doing this? You know, I, I understand we only got 42 minutes, but hmm. Um, but once again, we get, uh, as we find out, uh, don't be too hard on the writers. They know what they're doing. That's right. Yes, they sure do. And from there, it gets really cool. We see Shaw in the cab. She does speak Farsi, uh, Sarah Shaw. Her, her dad is Iranian. Her mother is Spanish. But... Um, her dad grew up in Iran. I think they, they left, um, she was born in the U S if I remember right. But anyway, she does speak Farsi. So what we saw there was, was really her doing her thing, which was really cool. It's glad to see them bring that. I'd heard her talk about that, um, on one of the talk shows a couple of years ago. And so I don't recall her ever speaking Farsi on the show before she, she could have, and I just don't recall it, but definitely saw it here. And I thought that was cool. So the cab ride with with her and the and the cabbie was was neat. Uh, and then she goes full on Shaw in the in the little convenience store or whatever that was with Millhouse. And that also was just all this stuff's happening, and I'm just loving. I'm like lapping it up. I'm just loving it. It's it's so incredible to get her back and see her doing her thing. And she's trying to manipulate the um, the situation so that. Uh, yep. The machine finds out about where she is. Um, it, I thought it was a little funny where she has got the uh, uh, the store clerk, you know, uh, duct taped to whatever, and she's telling him, "Hey, Bobby, don't wet yourself." Which was funny because, according to what the one of the orderlies said back when she was uh, ca- captured, she did that to herself because of the uh, drugs they'd given to her. Right. So I guess she was, you know, I know what it's like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, she didn't, and he didn't, but. You know, we don't know this at, at this point. But, yeah, I didn't even pick up on that <laughs> until I saw your note. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. So much of that was good. I mean, he's he's terrified as, you know, all of us would be or most of us. Um, she's covered in blood. I got to tell you, man, any of those scenes where not the opening scene where they see, where we see her sliced open and it put in, that didn't, you know, make me squeamish at all. But anytime you're hacking open a, a wound like that, it's just like, I know it's TV, but mm. it's still I'm like, Oh, I just cringe, you know. I like, 
<laughs> I have to wince away. When when we see her in the bathroom doing that, when when Root is taking it out later on in the episode, both of those scenes, I was just like, oh my gosh, I know it's fake, but hand me a puke bucket. <laughs> Which is weird. Medieval I don't, brain I'm, surgery. I don't think I'm really that squeamish, but it, I don't know. It just didn't. It was gross. I don't know. I don't like watching myself get a shot. That's all, or blood drawn or something. I there you go. Things. Yeah, I, I am the same with blood. I'll, I'll look away. I can look at it once the needle is in, but I do look away when they're popping that sucker in the vein. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when she wigs out those, we've seen that, we see that by this point a couple of times. What did you think was going on there? Well, I thought that the the chip was i thought there might be multiple chips even after like root took the the chip out and said that it, she it was disabled and yada 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 i thought well there's there's more than one chip um i didn't think that it was brainwashing uh which i know that they they mentioned at some point that we broke her you know months ago yada yada why am i saying yada yada tonight that's the second time i don't usually say that word or <laughs> words um but I thought it was a second chip. I didn't know if the first one was just a placebo or if it was, you know, trying to be a more powerful chip or serve a different purpose. I, did, I don't know. I didn't really think ahead to that point. But I thought there was still an, another chip in her brain and it was glitching or, or trying to snap her, trying to take control of her. And she was fighting back against it. You know, that, that sort of thing. That's what I thought was going on. What about you? Well, I thought they were like memories that were trying to reassert themselves that like uh, perhaps the Samaritan crowd had suppressed or, you know, have rearranged in her mind. And it's like her mind trying to, you know, wrest control back. Uh, that's what I thought originally. At the end, not, you know, knowing what we know now, my guess is these are perhaps memories of the 6740 iterations prior to that. She's, some of those memories are bleeding through. Um, that, that she's been here before. I like, for example, when she was in the, or, or either before she was at the church or when she was at the church, one of the scenes that flashed by was the outside of a church, the stained glass and the steeple and all that. And I thought that was coincidental, but I bet you that's, she'd been there before. She had done very similar things. You know, I think that's, that's the real explanation for what had happened there. Mm -hmm. Um, Lucas O'Connor, like I said, who was the, um, uh, one of the writers there, he tweeted it about at the, about this point. He said, uh, you know, she had so much blood on her hands after dealing with the thing in her head. Yep. And Lucas O'Connor tweets, question I get asked. So how much of her hands should be covered in blood? My job is awesome. Because <laughs> he wrote, I guess, Shaw's hands are covered in blood. So the uh, effects guys want to know, hey, yeah. let's do this. Yes. It was an just incredible amount of blood, and when she wiped it on Milhouse's shirt, that <laughs> that was a nice little comic relief moment of the episode. So another really cool moment of the episode, though, is after you know, so she she triggers what she hopes will be her friends and Samaritan, knowing that definitely Samaritan will will pick up on the trigger. She's hoping her friends will be triggered and get there in time, and they end up getting there just behind the Samaritan goons and makes for a nice little shootout. Root comes in, of course, we all recognize Root's voice before she ever comes on screen, and we get the reunion that we had been been hoping for, uh, and we're going to get a, a, another reunion here in just a minute we're going to talk about, too, but it was cool to see them, uh, you know, finally get that, that moment where they, you know, for Root especially, because she's been so desperately seeking Shaw, 
so uh yeah that was that was a really cool moment there in the in the store they didn't prolong it it wasn't you know too much um yeah. like i said there was another scene we'll talk about in a minute but uh it was cool i don't know what, what, what do you have any special thoughts about the uh the actual reunion no i just i was you know oh there's the reunion this is the moment you mm-hmm. know when and you know roots re- reaction was uh was very much in character with her and uh but like you said they didn't waste too much time on that they didn't yep. you know get all uh sentimental and whatnot and because really shaw really isn't that way root right. might be i don't know uh but uh but shaw certainly wasn't and root knows that so they got that and they moved in because well they didn't have a whole lot of time you know samaritan's on his way and uh hers his goons are so stand back and then they get her out onto uh, uh a subway and try to take the uh the actual chip out did she i guess uh shaw's attempt failed and so root needed to do it i guess i guess so yeah um because she, she was covered in blood because she was trying to get it out and root ended up doing it so yeah that was the gist that i took of it and at first i wasn't sure you know which which subway car were they on were they were they going to the subway station where the machine is or you know or, or, or what was going on but it's made obvious pretty quickly that this this subway car has nothing to do with the one that they call home so um again that's that was that squeamish moment i i i already talked about but a lot of interesting things happen here some conversations again between finch wanting to to be cautious and do things kind of uh, not not to get into a hurry not to make any rash decisions and Shaw jumps all over him, you know, and did, how how soon did you give up on me? Were you even looking for me? And just really kind of lays into Finch a little bit. And my note here is that seems to be more of Root's sentiment. I didn't realize that Shaw felt that way. And even if, even after we look back through this episode through the lens of this being, you know, assimilation, these memories or, or these these not the memories, but what's happening seems to be pulling being pulled from Shaw's brain. Um, at least I assume it is, uh, or or maybe they're pumping some information into her. Maybe they, you know because they would have the data feeds where Shaw or excuse me Finch told Root, "Hey, we gotta you know call off the dogs or whatever." I'm sure they observed that, so maybe they're pumping those memories into her in order to incite a reaction that they want to get you know get information out of her. So I'm really not sure what what which it was. Was that really coming from Shaw's brain, the, that, the way that she was so aggressive towards Finch and the things that she said? Or was that coming from being piped in from information that Samaritan had gathered from observing Finch and Root? I think the, uh, the reactions of Shaw were intended to be Shaw herself so that uh, by her nature, she would then at some point, you know, show them where the uh, secret layer of Team Machine was. Mm-hmm. So I think they were trying to leave her alone as much as possible. And the rest of this was like the if then else episode we keep referring to, where you know the machine, if the machine can do it, Samaritan can do it. It can predict what each person would say, you know, down to the word in each mm-hmm. situation. And so uh, I think that's what we re- really saw. Like, and and as we mentioned, uh, uh, somebody mentions later in the feedback, these are the same uh, writers. Uh, of that episode as this so yeah yeah i think that's a it's, that's definitely a possibility for sure that the samaritan could definitely make those predictions all right well, let's talk about the uh the next scene yeah, look we know that root has the hots for shaw this has been pretty clear for at least a couple of seasons now 
when we last saw them on screen together, that was when Shaw turned toward Root and gave her a big kiss and then went and sacrificed herself for Team Machine. And I think Root has been anxiously anticipating an opportunity to um, return that affection. And so we finally get that here in this episode. Here's the thing with this scene for me. I don't know what it accomplished. You know, I've said for years, for those who have been listening to me with the Fringe podcast and onward, I don't really watch TV for relationships, whether it was Lost or Fringe. That's not to say there aren't relationships that I that I care about or that I that I enjoy more than others. Uh, that's certainly the case. I think we all have certain relationships that we uh, that appeal to us more than others. So the whole Shaw Root relationship thing, I don't really care. I'm not for it. I'm not against it. It's just, it is what it is. They like each other and that's fine. Um, I, I felt like at some point this season, we were going to get something from them. I felt like the mm-hmm. writers were going to work to that and give the audience that, which brings me to to a, my a couple points here. One point, for those out there watching who have been wanting this, you know, for, for whatever reason, they didn't get, they still didn't get it. I mean, yes, on screen, they got Root and Shaw doing their thing. But they really didn't because this was all fake. It was all virtual reality. And so it still didn't happen. So I don't know what to take from that. Does that mean we got it and that's all that we're going to get? Because if I'm one of those people, I'm not satisfied with this. I didn't get what I wanted. Um, Or does that mean it's still yet to come? We're going to get more of that. Maybe it is. I did think it was over the top, though. I mean, I don't care who it is. If it's two girls or a guy and a girl, I don't know. It, with them disrobing and pulling each other's pants off and all that stuff. I don't know. I, like I said, I don't tune into TV for that. So I thought it was a little over the top for that. So that was the, that was the main reason I actually scored the episode down half point for this. Because um, it was just, I felt like it was it was too over the top. And then I just felt like it didn't really satisfy. I think the only people that probably enjoyed it were the people who just like to watch you know, that sort of thing. Either girl on girl action or just enjoy watch, yeah. that, that type of... that. Uh, those types of scenes. I'm not one of those. So anyway, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and for, mo- for most of the same reasons, but what I think is that in the future, if they were to do this again, it would be more anticlimactic. I mean, they have yeah. done it here on screen and while it may, it may not have actually happened and you know, the, the characters themselves have not necessarily, she, I guess Shaw has experienced it in her head. Root hasn't. What'll happen when they, you know, ultimately do get together in real life? But I think, for purposes of the viewers and uh, the story there, I think it would be anticlimactic after this point. Okay, they got it out of the way. Fine, and I, I understood that 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 this was an inevitable, you know, thing to happen. Like you said, it was a little much. You know, the the, the dishes crashing and what? Okay, right. And then th- that that was that was almost comical, I guess, in in some sense. Which yeah, a bit over the top, but they, um, but they 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 paid off the way they wanted to pay it off. Okay, so I don't think that you can do that again uh, without saying, well, okay, we've seen this before. Um, so I, my, that's my guess. Yeah, yeah, I think we're, we're largely on the same page. I also thought it was really weird that because Root was being really aggressive, even grabbing her around the head at first. And I just knew that her thumb was going to gush into that that wound back. I mean, it's just oh. like being way too aggressive for this type of really serious wound. I was wondering why, that, why, that why her Shaw uh, Shaw's wound didn't open back up again. I know. My goodness. <laughs> I'm thinking practically here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be that aggressive. You're going to 
bust her head open, and then the whole scene is ruined. Anyway, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> well, uh, what a buzzkill. Yeah, that no doubt. Well, so we move on from there. We get that's when we find out that they the chip was the placebo. Uh, they wake up the next morning, or maybe it was before, anyway. Either way, she wakes up the next morning. There's a little pillow talk going on, and um, Shaw goes into the bathroom. Has another little moment here and she has the explosives and the gun in her hand and again we're trying to figure out what's going on what's what actually is happening in her mind particularly since the chip has been removed and now we're like oh she's still wigging out and so that's what i'm going i'm going what is going on here that's when i think i started thinking that there's a second chip at this point um because she was still kind of wigging out and and uh well i i thought there was still some mind control happening Mm -hmm. because you know after she wigs out, she now has C4 and a gun in her hand. And so that's, that sounds to me like she's these little, you know, whiteouts or, you know, whatever are Samaritan taking over and making her do what it wants you to do. That was, that was the impression I got. Now, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe during that time it, it did. Uh, and he's, it, it's trying to move the story, quote unquote, uh, forward so that, okay, hurry up. Let's get on and find out where this lair is. So, you know, it, it manages to get stuff in her hand so that she can uh, move on from there. That that was the impression I got. Uh, again, not thinking yet that this is a, vi- a virtual reality. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. The virtual reality is not in my mind at all at this point. I mean, we're getting closer mm. to where that starts going, hmm. But at this point, no. No, I have I have no idea. Um, so Shaw goes to meet with Reese and well, Root does first. Root, I'm sorry, I didn't mean Shaw. I meant Root. And they start having this conversation. And this was, I think, was another little bit of a could be a clue because Root has has been bugged. But when would Shaw have put the bug on her? I mean, she could, and that's the thing. Well, she could have. She's she's a ninja. She, you know, there's any number of ways that she could have done, and and we didn't see it. So. Again, I don't really she didn't think know too- what she was doing getting the gun in the C4, perhaps. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, so I didn't like, think too much of it until on rewatch. I'm like, hmm, that might have been a clue. Might have been a, a tell that something uh, was a little too convenient. Therefore, something, you know, is, is going on here. But um, I did like where Shaw just grabs a random phone, calls a random person, and says what she's going to say because she knows that Samaritan's going to pick up on it no matter who she's talking to or what she says. <laughs> That was great. Oh, home? Okay, we'll call. Hello, honey. <laughs> All right, Samaritan. Come yeah. get me. Can you imagine the person on the other end like, what the heck? <laughs> what was that? Wrong number? <laughs> prank call? What is that? Well, yeah, but it came from the cell phone of my daughter or son or whatever. That's so, true. You know, it did. Hey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is somebody stolen your phone, honey? We need to call the insurance. Thank you. But but I find here, too, that we have, and maybe this was another tell, mm-hmm. um, Shaw wants to go, let's take the fight to Samaritan. And yep. even Root is cautioning against that, which is, you know, not something that we've seen from her, really. She has been as aggressive as uh, as anybody in trying to go after it. And she's the one saying, well, you know, maybe not so much. Yeah, exactly. So, right. uh, so yeah. yeah. Well, if that didn't give it away or start to make you cause cause you doubt that what we're seeing isn't really on the up and up, the the next scene or what happens next is really where I start kind of my flares are starting to go up, going hmm, and that is that they found Greer 
way too easily and were able to capture him way too easily. And that's when I'm going, mm-hmm. I don't know about this. And so, so from there on, the next like big three things that happened, of course, by the end of the third or fourth one, it's like, okay, yeah, we got it now. But this was the first one for me where I thought, I think something else is going on here. I didn't know if it was assimilation or, you know, virtuality, whatever you want to call it. I thought it might be a setup. All of this of, of Shaw getting out and all that stuff was all part of Samaritan and Greer's plan. So that's what I'm kind of thinking at this point. But I'm thinking, nope, this is way too easy. This isn't what, we, you know, what's happening isn't really what's happening. It's, it's like the Millennium Falcon escaping the Death Star. It was just too easy. <laughs> that's right. That's no moon. Yes, Boy, folks, we're going to bring in every in. TV show and movie we can think of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I liked the line from Finch when they show up at a church. I, I think it's uh, Shaw who mentions, oh, we're at a church. And Finch says, it seems that church is the best place to hide from a god. Yeah. And from a churchgoer, I have to say, you know, he's got a point. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people seem point, to yeah. go to a church to just uh, to be them, themselves and not to be affected by the god that they are supposedly there for. So, uh yeah, that was a very interesting line. I like that one. That was a, it was a good point. Mm-hmm. We get the idea of Faraday cages in both of these episodes. Um, this one where they said that the the church itself served as a sort of Faraday cage, which would kind of give them some sort of protection, uh, a shield. Um, therefore, the machine Samaritan, rather, couldn't really track them, couldn't overhear them, etc., I don't know about that. I don't know how that church would serve as a Faraday cage, but I mean, I'll roll with it. That's one of those TV things. You know, where we get the Faraday cage in the next one, again, a little bit, I don't know, but much more believable in that, that it's actually surrounded by metal. This is an old building. I don't know how that would have worked as a Faraday cage, but like I said, I'll roll with it. And it's assimilation, so I guess we're rolling with everything. But what we get there is... um a confrontation with Greer. I wasn't surprised in at all where he says, kill me. I don't care. I'm irrelevant. I mean, we essentially heard him say that uh, last season at some point where I think it was control. Maybe said that, you know, you think you're in th- this machine will kill you the second, you know, or whatever. And he's like, I don't, yeah, of course it will. I, we're all irrelevant. So that was no surprise um, when he said that. Yeah, I like the the fact that he used the term irrelevant. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was a little ironic there. Yeah, and so you know they're trying to figure out a way to shut off Samaritan. They uh, find a scar on uh, on Greer because you figure Greer's probably got to have some sort of uh, of way to shut it down. And you know, if we've if you know Greer, he didn't want to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they do find a USB uh, in his arm. Well, there's a nifty place to stick it. <laughs> And it's apparently similar to Arthur Claypool's code. The guy Claypool's code, excuse me, the uh, the guy who wrote Samaritan. Yep. And so this must be the kill switch. You know, load it up and it'll find him and and turn it off. And that again, that seemed that wasn't too bad in terms of a uh, a tell to say that this is a VR. But I I did think that the idea that Greer would ever want to shut down Samaritan just didn't it didn't cross my mind that he would have a kill switch like that right and so for those who might be thinking that 
a few moments later, we get the conversation between Greer and Shaw where he's like, this is all working beautifully into our little plan. And she's like, what? What are you talking about our plan? And he's like, oh, well, you know, and he kind of explains to her that it was not a kill sit switch for Samaritan, but a kill switch for the machine, or at least a way to a beacon to the machine, that is. And so, yeah, it kind of turns it on its ear for those who might be getting a little bit too suspicious. That makes a whole lot more sense than a kill switch for the machine. Yep, and uh, she wigs out once again, but this time she's got a gun in her hand when she wakes up, uh, well, again, and um, goes ahead and gives the gives the fans a, a nice, you know, headshot to the Greer. Yeah. Man alive. And that was great, but it, I was, as much as I loved that, I was like, well, my first thought was, crap, I think I had him dying in episode 12 or 13. It was one of those two. <laughs> So I missed that prediction. And then I thought, I don't know. I'm still suspicious. But this seems a little bit too easy and convenient. And at this point, once I had that thought, that's kind of when I thought, this is all fake somehow. I, 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 that's when I started thinking this is fake. But I wasn't really sure. I'm like, I'll still roll with it. But mm, I think we're being Scooby-Dooed here. <laughs> I went ahead and went down to our notes where we're going to keep track of, you know, people who died for the contest. And uh, so I put Greer, episode four. And uh, <laughs> so I was ready for that. And then, then yeah. this is where it absolutely uh, got me here. Reese is now suspicious of Shaw. You know, uh, she's been acting weird. And so at that point, she shoots Reese as well. And I'm thinking okay this he can't be dead no no not yeah. in episode four he's not dead um but and you know he's still breathing but then we see like for example she doesn't want to she's sure uh, samaritan ops are are on the way they're waiting but they're right at the end of the the alleyway and so it's like yeah no 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 no. this is this yeah it's yeah you and i i think we as we were writing up our, our uh, notes for this we're like some no 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 this yeah. can't be yeah, I go over to the Facebook page at this point. I think I go on commercial because that has he's gasping for air. I think they go to commercial, and I think I typed in something like, "This is this happening?" You know, Greer and and uh, Reese, and uh, just to say, I don't know that this is real. And so, I mean, because well, it's at Reese, this point, Reese might die, point. but not like this, not, oh, yeah, not okay, by Shaw. Yeah. You know, I don't think so. But it's at Sorry, this point, talking about commercial break, this is where CBS yeah. comes in and says, and, you know, coming up next or, t- or coming up tomorrow, and they show Reese, you know, alive yeah. and well and in some sort of trouble. But, oh, man, guys, please, you got you to plan these a little better. Yeah, a lot wow. of people were upset about that. It really killed the drama. It killed the, the momentum of that commercial break cliffhanger. Not really very smart. Yeah, but he'll be fine tomorrow. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So I, I thought it was very clever trying to get them or get her to lead them to the uh, the underground machine lair, and that was a it was a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 this is Samaritan who can do something like that. Yeah. And yeah, Root shows up and she's trying to uh, trying to you know I guess reason with her to to we need to get back to the you know back to the. The, the home base or whatever. And Shaw realizes that she has, um, she, she's really out of control. She, she really can't control herself. You know, potentially this is still Samaritan in her, but she, uh, 
she takes out. No, it's actually, she doesn't shoot Root. She says, "There's, I, there's only one thing I can tr- control, and it is this." And she kills herself. And it's like, oh no, 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 no. This is not. Uh, this is not the, the reality. And we start to, you know, pan back, and there is, uh, there's Root with. I'm, I'm sorry, there's Shaw with uh, some really snazzy virtual reality glasses on, and didn't. I didn't really notice this, and I'd seen people uh, mention it before, but I, I guess, and I missed it, those VR glasses were actually like on the tray next to her table, uh, Gurney or whatever, when at the beginning of the episode? I, I didn't see them. If I have to go back and look if, if I get a chance, but no, I didn't notice them there the whole time. And then Greer gives us the reason for the name of the episode. 6,741 iterations of the simulation, and uh, now let's try it one more time. He he died a little later, about an hour later than he has before. Wow. <laughs> but here's the, th- here's the thing, though. <laughs> the thing, though, is wouldn't... It's not that Shaw has memories of what happened before. You know, next time she goes a little farther, next time she goes a little farther. It would seem like it's it it's like Yahtzee. It's like I'm trying to roll all ones that gets us to the machine's lair. And if you roll all five dice and there's two ones, when you start the the simulation over, it's not like you keep the ones down and you pick up the other three and try to get ones on them. You gotta start all over again. It's like right. you you're trying to roll a Yahtzee on the first roll every single you know, for this six thousand seven hundred and some odd uh thing. So it does it's not like it's not like it would be progressive. Do it enough times, but it's just keep doing it until you get the right role. Yeah, and I guess that's because you know she's she's an independent thinker. She's going to be able to. She's a, she's fighting back. Um, they, she mentioned at some point, you know, nine months in captivity. So by this time, I had done the math. You know, you figure twenty four hours in a day times uh, thirty days in a month times nine months, and that's six thousand four hundred and eighty. And so. If you figure, you know, I don't know how long the simulation takes in real life. It could be like a dream. It, it seems like a moment, but it's been, you know, all night or, you know, so you don't know how that's working. But, you know, that, that means that they've been, if, if it's 6,480 hours and nine exact months, this was 6,741 was the name of the episode. So it could be that they just been, have, have been doing this. You know, she's been there a little over nine months. I think that's reasonable. And they just been going this at this nonstop. Now that doesn't make sense. Cause you know, she'd have to eat and, and, uh, and sleep at some point. Otherwise she would just, she would die. So, um, I don't know. The math is certainly, I think plausible that, that an iteration doesn't take a full hour. Maybe it takes 15 minutes to go through all that in your mind or 30 minutes. I don't know, but pretty crazy. That they've been through it that many times, and uh, she's still fighting back. Yeah, you get to the end of this, though, and I understand how some people had a uh, a difficult time with this, is saying uh, a couple things. Number one, we haven't really gone anywhere. We At the beginning of the episode, uh, Samaritan crowd and Greer does not know where the machine is. At the end of the episode, they don't know either, but we've been through one iteration of you know thousands upon thousands of these uh, realities. See simulations. So yes, I see where we where that where that comes from. And number two, we've only got thirteen episodes. We've got to you know get the story moving here. Uh, so there was you know some concern about that that we again at the beginning of the episode versus the end we have not moved the story along, other than to get a little 
familiarity with uh, Shaw's incarceration. But from a dramatic point of view, this story was a classic uh, person of interest episode. Not so much because there was a person of interest, actually, you know, not like the procedural we're used to. But from a drama point of view, it was really, uh, really powerful. And it keeps you guessing. It keeps you guessing until, you know, it gets more and more and more obvious that, yeah, something's not right here. I, I, I really enjoyed it from that perspective. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. I mean, yes, of course, at the end of the episode, we really haven't moved the needle that far, ex- except that we have. We've learned, we've, they've given us the backstory of where Shaw has been, what Greer has been doing to her. We got caught up on that. Like I said, they, based on the number of iterations, this is probably what they've been doing to her the entire time. Um, we learned that she is still, she is still alive. She has still got a lot of fight in her. And, and so we now, and we know what our team is up against if they're going to try to get Shaw back. Now, we don't know when, when they do get Shaw back or when Shaw gets, you know, freed from that, that lab, will there be some damage done? Will she, will her mind be, Will she have been turned in? Even will she struggle like we saw her doing? You know, will, will there? Be, will we see some? We don't know any of that, but I still feel like we got the backstory of where she's been. We know, we know, like I said, her, her she's very strong. She's fighting back, and we know what our team is up against and what she's up against in order to get her out of that situation. So, uh, and it was great storytelling, drama, action-packed, funny. You know, all those things that we look for in this show. So, for all those reasons. Um, that's why I, I scored it a nine. I, I rated it down because it was it was about halfway through the episode that I was able to figure out that you know these aren't the droids we're looking for. <laughs> it's a terrible analogy. Something wasn't right, and then I th- I felt like the the scene with Shaw and Root was too over the top. But um, but those were the only things I gave him both of those a half point deduction and ended up at a nine. All righty. Well, they promised a blockbuster, and they uh, they delivered. I think they did and say then, that uh, bodies would drop on episode four, and technically they did, but technically they did not. So, for those of you playing along at home who are making your predictions for our live another day contest, nobody sorry. technically died in this episode. <laughs> oh, I think there were some people who were kind of thinking, "Well, I'll just go on a limb and say, yeah." Yeah. But, uh, yep. That limb. They they sawed that limb off. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk Alrighty. about shot seeker. Shot seeker. Usual intro. Well, usual. Once we've, I think this is the first intro that has been a repeat of a previous intro in this season. Uh, the Finch and Greer so. combination mm-hmm. that uh, is a little more. Uh, you know, it's Finch with his p- bits and pieces of his usual intro. With Greer, you know, making his uh, very ominous uh, predictions and uh, what he's telling people, you know, you will be, you know, made to care or whatever. But we have a uh, we have uh, Finch. I'm sorry at the uh, at the new safe house with new security, and it's a we find out later why. I think I think I think that's uh, that was supposed to kind of give us a little hint that something was going to go on there, and so I thought that was very interesting. Once I saw the end. Um, and we have a new and actual person of interest, a number, 
Uh, Ethan Garvin, who has created this uh, program called Shot Seeker, which can detect gunshots and and pin them down. And I thought this was a very interesting, uh, you know, it's, it, again, this is person of interest being POI, where the slightly ahead of its time uh, technology, but not in the realm of uh, impossibility, at least in the near future. I mean, I can see this being an actual thing. And so uh, Garvin is, uh, I think, I don't know if he invented it and uh, then uh, fixed the accuracy or if he took somebody else's work and, and uh, fixed it up. But it's a uh, it's a great little uh, thing. Now, we've had Person of Interest has been all about video feeds, and now mm-hmm. we have uh, audio feed thing. So I, I liked the playoff of that as well. I did too, and it reminded me also um, some of the things that we had through this episode um, where Samaritan is manipulating situations, planting evidence, listening in on things, creating false realities about people and that sort of thing. So it was uh, all the clues were there, again, from the beginning that Samaritan was behind all of this. And it's no surprise if there is a feed being monitored, audio, video, or otherwise, you know that Samaritans, if they're not behind it, they're involved with it. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah. And we had kind of a B story that we um that merges in ultimately. Uh but it merges in in kind of an unexpected way here. Fusco gets his lunch paid for by uh uh Bruce, a friend of Elias, who wants mm-hmm. to know what's going on. Now, it's very interesting and I'm sure they this parallel was intended. Fusco would like to know the truth too, you know, find out what's going on. Fusco did uh, save Elias, as we find out later on, but but there's there's truth that they are both being kept out of. And uh, so I like I like that little uh, that little parallel. And then we had a baby machine. How about that? And uh, uh, Finch puts it in its own little playpen, a Faraday cage. That's that's right. Yeah, we got the Faraday cage. Yeah. So much like me right now, as we're doing this live podcast, you are glitching like crazy, and I'm only understanding about I don't know sixty percent of what you're saying. Um, that's what my TV signal was doing Tuesday night as I'm watching this episode. It was it was glitching. It would freeze. It would come back, and I would try to put in the pieces. And on my rewatch today, I realized that I was missing a whole lot more of the episode than I thought. And there were some pieces, some very important pieces I was missing. So while I originally rated it a six because it just was boring, when I when I rewatched it today and got all the information, I was like, "Oh, this episode was actually better than I thought. It, I thought it was." So um, there's, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain what like the whole idea of the two machines and the little mini machines going. I mean, I knew that they were battling each other, but I didn't hear. I didn't get the part about the Faraday cage. I didn't get the part about how he had just isolated a piece of the code and all, him describe all of that setup and. Just those little details, they're what glued the episode together. And that happened in probably four or five different scenes where I missed these little details to really fully understand what was going on. So the episode certainly sat a lot better with me after after I got the full the full deal. You know, they've used this uh, contraption so much that I'm sure a lot of person of interest uh, viewers have been Googling Faraday cage uh, yeah. because we've seen it twice in a row now. Right. And then we've seen it before. That's right. Yeah. It's a nice little uh, thing that TV shows, especially sci-fi shows, like to throw in. Fringe did it a couple of times. They used it at least twice as well. And it works pretty well. It's it's a neat little thing that, that um, 
you know, I don't know how much hand waving is going on in terms of would that be really be able to be used as a Faraday cage, but it's a neat little concept and a and it's a real thing that that these TV shows can throw in and make magic happen and and make it believable. I guess I'll put it that way. Hmm. Well, uh, our our hero or our number uh, Garvin. Uh, it seems to think that there's something going wrong with Shotseeker. He uh, he knows that, for example, a uh, woman named Krupa Niak, uh is missing or may have died, uh, or he just knows that somebody broke in and there were shots fired. He was confident there were shots fired, and he shows uh, Reese how he knows. But for some reason, Shotseeker thought it was uh, just an M80 or a bunch of M80s. So we're ver- I'm, I'm very impressed with his... Uh, uh, his knowledge right up front, we know that he's got, uh, he's he's the one that has uh, added to the accuracy of Shotseeker. And so uh, he, he gives it a test by sh- firing into the fireplace, which I, th- I was like, what is he doing? Is there something Yeah, I know. There? Yeah. But the, the neighbor, he thinks, may know something. And so he's, there's already this thought that something is taking over his his uh, machine, his uh, his software is not working the way he thinks it ought to be. Now, I have one question. I was at this point where, uh, and we've seen this before, where uh, Finch puts up these tapes up little pictures of the uh, the numbers of the people involved, and I mm-hmm. noticed this week that most of them all have the same background. It's like they 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 are all getting passport photos at the same place, and <laughs> he gets he gets he manages to get into that uh, you know post office or whatever that's a or photographer that, that creates all those photos, and there they all are. It's just amazing, very nice you know headshots. Uh, it's not like uh, I don't know, maybe they're. It's almost as though they're actors, you know, with their portfolio. You know, I don't. It, maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's me. I've never really paid attention to that. <laughs> I don't have a comment. They're all standing there smiling. The yeah. same little uh, light blue background. Yeah, and they anyway, have like a uh, DMV there at the, in the at the office. You know, you've been hired for the show. <laughs> now come over here and let us take your picture so we can get you on the POI wall. I don't, I don't know. That's right, and give us your social security number. Oh, wait a minute. At this point, you know, you're trying to figure out what's up with with Garvin. Is he a stalker? It's crazy over. This girl, uh, he's the neighbors recognize him. I, Mary, the the neighbor that comes out, and the the other neighbor that just kind of sticks his head out and tells him to go away. I mean, they recognize him, so he's he's showing up. Reese observes him taking drugs. We learn later he hasn't really been sleeping, and so you really are trying to figure out what is up with this guy. And you know, honestly, my first watch through, I didn't like any of this. It was way too procedural. This would have been a fine episode last season. We have 13 episodes here. I want every episode to count. And my first watch through this, I was this whole storyline with him. I just took nothing from, and and even still, I mean, I did still rate it 7.5, which is a you know it's on the lower end for me. Um, there's some things that will tie into the bigger picture, which is another thing I liked about it. But yeah, at this point, we were trying to figure out, you know, what's what's with him and his actions and his you know, what what he's doing with the drugs and what he's doing with the stalking and what his motives are and that sort of thing. And that was, it was interesting, I guess. I think he has uh, stumbled across something. He was just yeah. kind of irked that his, um, that his software wasn't working, but in proving that uh, it's uh, not, proving that it's been being tampered with or something, he kind of yeah. stumbles on this whole uh, big agra, Conspiracy, not conspiracy. Well, yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah. He, you know, sure. the, you're, um, 
Krupa has come up with, you know, a new way to make uh, uh, food last longer in storage. And uh, so, you know, all of her research has been, um, uh, seemed to be stolen and it's kind of planted is, well, it's, it's found on uh, another large agribusiness's uh, computer and the CEO of that has, uh, is kind of implicated in her murder. But, you know, we find out, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't do it at all. We don't really get an, a, Result a result resolution. That's the word I'm looking for. A resolution to the uh, the murder mystery, do we? Because uh, ultimately, it's just like, well, he didn't do it, and he didn't do it, and Shotseeker's been uh, hijacked by somebody. But we never get Krupa's uh, ultimate uh, uh, disposition. We don't know what happened to her. Well, and I I think that's actually one of the things I liked about the episode. But there's a few th- and there's a few things going on here. I mean, we she's got this great thing you just mentioned where she can solve world hunger, if you will. The machine seems to be against that. I mean, they 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 called off the dogs when they made that information public, which I thought was weird. I can't figure that one out. Or maybe I misunderstood something. Um, but you're right. At the end of the episode, she's still missing. And I think that's very important. I mean, Fusco had mentioned to John, hey, you can't have missed this. The fact that homicides are down, suicides are up. Or maybe that was from the other episode. He mentioned that too, but I'm not sure he mentioned that this week. But he mentioned missing persons are way up. Why are all these people going missing? It's got to have something to mm-hmm. do with the with Samaritan. And are they all... People who are difference makers like Krupa or are they just random people and she just happened to be one of them? Um, Did the fact that they made her information public and therefore, you know, because it could be people were looking for her because she had something that people wanted that they couldn't get anywhere else. And now once her information is made public, well... No one's going to care because they got the information, you know? Or so, so maybe that, that's why it wasn't a big deal to Samaritan once the information went public. Because they didn't want people looking for her. And people seemed to be looking for her because they wanted what she had. And now that was accessible. So, but I do, I do like that that ties into something. They've, they've made it very clear. Homicides are down. Suicides are up. Missing persons are up. And that's got to tie into something that we get resolved um you know by the end of the season and and so i actually scored the episode up once i figured that out you know again i missed those pieces and those were kind of important pieces yeah and i have a feeling we'll see krupa again before the season's out yeah nobody yet so Um, we gotta see her at some point that she will be yeah she will be the uh explanation or part of the explanation once we find her as to why there is uh, uh why all this is going on the missing persons and suicides Mm-hmm. Now, during all this, uh, John does get captured, and the thought is initially that this is Samaritan that has taken him out, just because that seems to be the obvious, the obvious uh, uh, perpetrator for this particular thing. But as we find out a little later, Bruce did it, and he was apparently not—he uh, didn't enjoy the last conversation, so he decided to have one on his or his own terms, and yeah. uh, and Fusco. I don't know. Fusco seems to, um, uh, he's not going to let go of this whole pursuit of what is really going on here. And I like that in him. I mean, he's been very, he's, uh, a lot of times in the past, he's been comic relief. And this season, he's really coming into his own. And it's one of those things that this, there's no excuse as to why we 
are not going to read Fusco into the whole machine situation here. I thought he did a great job with, with taking over the uh, the investigation. My partner's gone. Okay, you do this, you do this. I'll get back over there and all all that. And you know, with Finch saying, uh, you know, Lionel, just you know, hang back a bit. Fusco is. I'm sorry. Full speed ahead. I I like it too. Now look. I had kind of thought that Fusco had had achieved his his max level of frustration last season, where he wanted in on what was going on. But then we get this, what we got in this episode, and it's like Fusco does have a whole new. He has another level. He's he's kicked it up to eleven in this episode of his frustration, and he's not. I think in that level eleven is just saying, "All right, I'm not going to wait for answers." I'm going to go find answers now. I've given them every chance to tell me they're not doing it. So I'm just, I'm an investigator. I'll, I'm a detective rather. I'll, I'll go do it. I'll go figure it out. Now that is going to get him in a mess of trouble, but it's, it's fantastic and it's Fusco and it, it's, it's what he should be doing. So yeah. Now I will say you, you mentioned that John got kidnapped by Bruce and, I was fooled. I totally yeah, thought it was yeah. Samaritan. I even though we had been given Bruce, I was isolating these two stories. Even though when they captured John, they said, you know, tell the boss we got him or something. They used the word boss, and that was the word we always heard Elias's guys call him. And I think that was a really strong clue because we've never heard Greer referred to as boss. We've never heard boss thrown around in his group. That was always an Elias thing. So I think that was a pretty big clue that he had been kidnapped by Bruce, but I didn't catch that clue until my second watch. Yeah, that's and I didn't either. And, and they had um, Team Machine kind of fooled, of course. Um, so to uh, to help fool the audience as well. Yeah, they they did a good job with that uh, to keep keep. We're trying to compartmentalize; they are not. And it's like once again, trust the writers; they know what they're doing. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It was nice to see Bruce. We'd seen him a couple of times, once or twice before, I think, in that past episode. So we knew who he was, but it was cool to kind of see him again and to take a more aggressive and assertive role because he he's the only one left. And like he said to Reese, Anthony's death was avenged, but Elias's was not. And so it would make sense that he would be kind of... um on the lookout as to how he could avenge his, his best friend's death. And at this point, we get a little interlude with uh, the mini-machine test, the mini-me's, um, with the, the mini-Samaritan and mini-machine. And as he starts doing, uh, as Finch starts doing, uh, what, I, what I was reminded of is there are a number of, uh, this, I'm going to geek out here for a bit. There are, uh, programs where you can write, uh, especially good for learning computer languages, and you can write a code in a particular computer language that manipulates a robot in an arena. And you have special, you know, uh, programming uh, constructs that'll call to do a shoot a, uh, something one uh, direction, shoot a bullet this way, or move the uh, robot in another way, or scan this uh, area here and try to find other robots. And, um, I've seen, you know, versions of it for the C programming language, Java, Pascal even back in the day. And, you know, so then you can 
uh, either watch that all play out on your screen and see the robots move around, or you can just say, don't show me the screen, just run these robots as, uh, you know, attacking each other and run a bunch of simulations and, and see which one uh, does best overall, you know, because the, some will uh, get lucky at some points. But yeah, so that was the first thing that I was coming, uh, that was, that came to my mind for, uh, for those of you who were in the computer programming uh, world, that was uh, like a little simulation of robots beating each other up. And clearly, the machine was not uh, not happening. At one point, we see, you know, 300 million, uh, the number flying up very, well, actually starts out very slowly. And then later on, it's going a little faster. And then at one point, and I, 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 I couldn't quite see the, you know, the, the, the range of the number there, but... Uh, uh, at some point, it's like ten billion, and, and yeah. more than that. And wow, I mean, this is a. But here's the thing: it's uh, the machines just gotta find one way to win. Uh, and if it can, if it can find, you know, it, it's like this is if then else in a microcosm. You know, let's try this and and do these options. Well, that didn't work. Let's try these and do these options. And, but it's got a lot more time than it did in the real time situation with if then else. But now, yeah, it's it's our team machine is a little disheartened by the results. But like I said, you just got to get it right once. Well, do you? I mean, technically, yes. But I mean, it's ten billion to zero, and. If there's just one, yes, but now you've got to be able to do that one. Does it work that way? I mean, I, I guess I guess it technically it, it would. You've but holy cow, those! I mean, I guess I'm thinking about it in in like the lottery, for example. If the odds of me winning the lottery are ten billion to one, I have no. Okay, so you're saying there's a chance? I mean, no, there's not. <laughs> But I guess it doesn't work that way. It's just looking for that one way it can do it, and then it will go do it that way. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just rolling the dice. The idea is like an if then else. If then else. Okay. Yeah. Of um, course. There we go. Yep. You do this. You do this. You do this, and that's what's going to work. Yeah. But man, ten billion to zero so far. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't look like he's going to make the playoffs. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's disheartening. I mean, I feel better though. Now I I just wasn't thinking about it right. When you as soon as you said if then else, I felt so stupid. Yes. So I I guess we just need him to find the one. So I'm not as disheartened now cuz I'm thinking, man, the odds, those aren't good odds. No one can beat those odds. But if it, they just need the one the one, then then we're okay. We're okay still. Well, if they if if the machine always loses, then that's a whole different sort of uh outcome then. You know, then it's not a case of the machine beating Samaritan. Now Finch and Reese and Team Machine have to come up with some other, you know, good outcome, some other way that these two either can get along, can't we all just get along, or yeah. uh, or change Samaritan, or you know that sort of thing. I mean that 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 makes it actually, I would think, even more dramatic, even more difficult for our heroes to uh, to get a good outcome out of all this. What do you make of the line that we got where Root is again imploring Finch to 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 be more assertive and 
he says to her that the machine is smarter than either one of them, and then if there's going to be code that is to be changed, it's up to the machine to do it. I mean, well, what, what do you make of that? Is that really the the right approach or the best approach? I would say that it is Finch. It's two two um, aspects of Finch. Number one, the cautious Finch, uh, who is not so entirely sure that a uh, a computer AI should be doing this. You know, where it had been again, like we have heard in the past about, well, you know, if it's going to solve world hunger, it could kill a third of the people, and it gets the job done. So he, that's mm. that's his uh, that's the, the the cautious Finch, although. We've seen that I kind of you know being reined in a little bit, but number two, um, maybe he just doesn't seem up to feel up to the task uh, of doing that. He's done what he can in terms of giving the machine his ethics, his morals, and then now letting the child go off and figure it out for himself. Uh, it's the it's the parent letting the child you know cutting the the uh, apron strings, the umbilical cord, so to speak. And letting the child learn itself and recode itself and come up with its own its own ideas and its own re- uh, resolutions. Don't arm it necessarily unless it thinks it needs to be. I like that um, that idea, and that means that really uh, the machine has grown up in a sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we'll find out before too long what what happens. But it sure is a bleak situation right now um, as it stands. It's it's on the playground, just getting pummeled, and but you never know. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> well, the uh, the shot seeker uh, software, as we find out, there's no evidence necessarily that it was hacked. There's uh, a lot of misinterpretation still going on with the uh, with the software, and it's trying. It seems like it's trying to avoid getting the police involved in certain situations. Uh, Mary's number comes up. For the machine, but Shotseeker is saying no, it's not a big deal. So it's looking more and more like uh, that Samaritan is uh, is behind this because just because there's no evidence that Shotseeker was hacked, we've seen things before where uh, that Samaritan was involved, but clearly it covered its tracks really darn well. And in this case, it has framed the CEO of Harvesta. And just all the stuff going on all at the same time, I was a little confused at you know trying to keep all the uh the names going on here and um but we do find out that uh that ultimately Samaritan really is uh using this, and now you know it's gonna have ears as well as eyes, which is even yep. um even more dangerous uh you don't have to pick up the phone like Shaw did in her simulation and talk on the phone and and uh Samaritan finds out where you are you you got a whisper everywhere you go. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And we know this episode called back to two that we got last season, the jury episode that Finch was on with uh, Nina Sharp I and mean Blair Brown, um, <laughs> where the, mach- the Samaritan was trying to make it look like one thing or the other, you know, trying to make it was, was at least helping to make it look like one person was guilty when it was somebody else it was in their best interest and the other episode was um the the suicide episode where the employee was was um noticed that, that someone was asked was was asking for a suicide helpline and the the 
algorithm was spitting back, you know, how to kill yourself or things like that, like total opposite of what it should be doing. And it was, so it was manipulating data or giving, giving results other than what should have been. And that's kind of what we saw here with the audio where it was, oh, those weren't gunshots. It was M80s. And, and, oh, this isn't the guilty party. It's this person. And so, again, just right in line with what we've seen Samaritan doing in order to manipulate people and systems to achieve its own nefarious ends, whatever those are. I mean, we're still kind of not not truly aware of, of what Samaritan is after. Like we said, all these missing people, what are they, you know, what's going on there? There's a lot of questions still that we're we're trying to figure out. I, you know, it just occurred to me what, why, um, why this might be happening. What is the machine looking for? It's looking for victims or perpetrators of murders. Mm-hmm. So if Samaritan is trying to hide things from the machine, what's the best way? And, but it still wants to take out people. What's the best way to do it? Either they, uh, they go missing or they commit suicide. And that, is not, that won't show up on the machine's radar. So I'm wondering if that's what's going on here. Really, it's taking people out by not um, by not you know, putting it on the machine's radar and doing what it uh, uh, what it's expecting to see. Yeah, it could be. You're right. I mean, but it is also looking for people that are in some sort of danger, victim or perpetrator, that sort of thing. So there's a perpetrator involved with a missing person, but it's not a murder, the ultimate crime. So yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good observation, Doug. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. righty. What do we have next here? My goodness. We there was so much going on in this episode. Wow. Um I I think the next thing really is that we find out that uh, this is where we find out that uh uh Reese was uh kidnapped not by Samaritan but by um Bruce and trying to try, again trying to figure out what's going on with uh with uh Elias, you know, and trying to figure out the truth behind that and Really, Reese does not want to um, to uh, let that out clearly, uh, and he's not going to read him into the situation. But uh, uh, in trying to find Reese, Root, well, first of all, they're trying to get the hard drive back that had the Krupa's uh, research on it. But mm-hmm. she uh, she runs into a Samaritan goon, and I hadn't remembered this from before. But this is the guy, the painter dude from the uh, from an earlier episode. Uh, I didn't recognize him. Didn't notice that. That was oh, that really? was a good call by some folks. No, we even talked oh, at man. the end of that episode. How we got to keep an eye out for that guy? He's going to be back. Yeah, yeah. They said that. I'm thinking, okay, you know, we keep an eye out because he's a Samaritan op. Yeah. Oh man, I'm I'm well, I, we I tell you, right over my head. Yeah, and we weren't sure if he was a Samaritan op because remember he went looking for uh, he went to a, a a job placement agency and she's like, oh yes, you have just the skills we're looking for, mm. <laughs> and that was the last time we saw him. And we we kind of assumed it was Samaritan, but then we were like, maybe it's not. Clearly, it is. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting to hear from Bruce that four other kingpins in other cities had yeah. been killed at the same time. And this sounds like, I don't, my guess is Samaritan getting the, um, the biggest uh, threats out of the way to it. The guys who have uh, the control, the major control in other major cities, so that it can be, it can move into the vacuum. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be the most 
probable scenario. I mean, it was to, for it to take down crime bosses. We also saw last season that it was rising up political bosses, political puppets that it could control. So that's again, those would make sense that you would that you would take down opposition, those who would oppose order and structure and civility, you, you know, all those sorts of things. And so you get rid of those, the crime bosses, while raising up these these puppets within the infrastructure of cities all around the country, at least. So it's a pretty good, I mean, it's it's really, I mean, are they going to be able to resolve all this in the next, how many episodes are we down to now? We've had five episodes, so math, that's eight. So uh, I don't know, man. I want more seasons. I want to really flesh this out, and, and I don't know that we're really going to get it as fleshed out as we as we would like. As as quick as they have to go through this, they are still doing a good job in terms of um, stringing us along. Basically, um, yeah. they're they're. <laughs> I think in in the ads for this episode, this was like the final twist, you know, uh, that we see at the very end. And so now, I mean, I, I, the writers, I I keep as I did with the sixty seven forty one in this one as well. It's a case of you know, trusting them that they're doing the right thing and they know what they're doing. And I, I still sometimes, am I'm watching it thinking, I have been so inundated with TV tropes that, oh, yeah, they're using another one here. But, man, they use those and then they twist the knife and they flip them right <laughs> around on you. And I'm going to mix all sorts of metaphors here. They really do a great job with it. So Fusco says he's going to keep looking for Koopa, which is why I think that we're going to see her again. She's not uh, just going to be an example of uh, one of those missing persons. I think she's going to figure into the end. In addition to the fact that in order to get uh, Samaritan off her case, or off Garvin's case, the uh, Root uploads the information to the uh, you know just a few uh, public sites, and so all of a sudden he's not as big a deal and his goons get called off. Um, so yeah, definitely she is a... Um, a key piece of this, uh, of this last chapter. And, yeah. uh, and, and Fusco says, he, yeah, he's not going to give up on this. And this is going to, I think, lead him to, uh, the knowledge of the machine or to the point where they just have to tell him what's going on. Or Samaritan takes him out. <sighs> yes. Yes. And I, that's, that's actually, uh, my prediction. Yes. Okay. I say Fusco lives, but yeah, we'll see. Well, let's talk about Elias. I mean, we we we've talked about the Bruce thing, but I don't I don't know that we've talked about Elias yet. Um I was like so excited to see him alive. Now, look, we at the, I think in our preview episode, we I was saying, "No, he could still be alive. Here's how it went down." Da 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 da. But then when CBS came out and said that he was dead and Dominic was dead, I thought, "Well, Okay, it sure looked like he it sure looked like there was a glimmer of hope that he was still alive to me. But I'll be honest, Doug, I had given up that hope. I thought I had just I just come to the resolution that he was indeed dead. I mean, it was certainly believable that he was dead. But man, he's alive and I couldn't be happier. But but I think you don't show him to be alive unless you've got a purpose for him. I mean, they could have just said, we're done with that storyline. We've only got 13 episodes left. We're moving on beyond Dominic and Elias. And that would make perfect sense. But now that they've brought him back into the show, showing him to be alive, there has to be, he has a special purpose. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not to protect oil cans. So what is his special purpose? I don't know, but it, it looks like, uh, I, my guess is if if we're going to put him on the list now, I'm going to say Bruce is going to die this uh, this season. Because, <laughs> oh, yeah, Elias is telling him, look, buddy. Wh-, and, and Elias has not been read into it, but he seems to know, um, while Fusco knows something's weird, Elias seems to have, I don't know, it's not a deeper knowledge necessarily, but he seems to be uh, uh, honestly afraid of what this other yeah. um, uh, person, this other uh, you know entity in the uh, in the mix here, can do. And he says, "Bruce, go back into the shadows." But Bruce isn't going to have none of that. He's just uh, this is one adversary that can't be beat. Uh, that Elias, you know, Elias tells him so. And there's actually two, sir, you know, and uh, it might be a little tough for Bruce to try to go up against them. But uh, I thought that was, uh, I, I, I like that. This is going to be a, um, uh, I, I think Bruce is going to, you know, be taken out. And may, perhaps at that point, maybe Elias is going to have to be read into this just to uh, enlist his help to deal with uh, Samaritan. Yeah, when you think about storytelling, there's the building up, the establishing of the characters. There's the, the establishing of the plot lines. Our, our characters move forward. They reach a low point, and then you know they they achieve victory. They they I'm just broadening. I don't even know all the literary terms here, but when you look at this episode and go, "Holy cow!" Ten mil- billion to zero. Elias tells Bruce. Go back into the shadows. We are facing an adversary that cannot be beat. I mean, those are things you look at and go, holy cow, we've reached rock bottom here. This is a depressing reality that our friends have found themselves in. But then at the same time, I'm going, I don't think we've reached bottom yet. We haven't seen anybody die. We haven't seen them desperate. I mean, they're not, you know what I mean? I still think there's a lower I think the show's going to get lower, going to get darker before it gets lighter and happier. How do you feel about that? Yeah, they still have to go into Mordor before they can, uh, you know, get, you know, delete the ring, get rid of the ring. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's going to be fun. I mean, uh, we always hate to see our our favorite shows come to an end, but it's great to see them be able to end it on their own terms. And I'm sure that they're what they're going to, what, what they have in store for us for the remainder of this series is going to be nothing short of fantastic. Cause as we've said already, these writers and showrunners are exceptional and um, they know how to, how to do it right. And so I can't wait to see what, what happens. Alrighty. Shall we move on to surveillance in the news perhaps? Yes, indeedy. Well, this is from a Washington Post story from uh, January of this year, but it's referring to a court case that actually uh, was happening uh, late in 2015. The headline reads, You may be powerless to stop a drone from hovering over your own yard. William Meredith had just finished grilling dinner for his family when he saw a drone hovering over his land, so he did what what he said any Kentuckian might do. He grabbed his Benelli M1 Super 90 shotgun, took aim, and unleashed three rounds of birdshot. Downing the quadcopter, which had a camera, was a way to assert his right to privacy and property, he said. The drone was owned by John Boggs, a hobbyist who told authorities he was trying to take pictures of the scenery. 
He argues in a lawsuit filed this month, uh, that was, uh, like I said, January, but I, I was reading earlier that this really, this had happened, uh, and a lot of the uh, uh, legal maneuverings had happened late in 2015, uh, in U.S. District Court in Louisville, that Meredith did not have the right to shoot the craft down because the government controls every inch of airspace in America. So this is a little clash of rights. Uh, the question is, who owns the air above your your property. Now, the idea is that technically the FAA really owns, and, and the way this uh, article article puts it, is that it owns every inch of air from the top of your grass all the way up. Uh, and that's mostly for, you know, air traffic. But, you know, there is a point there where, uh, a point below which, you know, you really are, you, know, you got to get privacy issues. For example, one of the uh, the arguments that uh, this man makes, that uh, Meredith makes, is that, hey, if he was, you know, standing in my yard with a video camera, how is that different than flying a drone over my fence with a video camera? So we've got a kind of a gray area about how far your property rights do extend. Now, I do know, for example, that in, um, in many cities, I know in New York City uh, for sure, that you own the air rights above your a building, for example, when you own a building, you own the air above it up to a certain point. And I don't know exactly how far that is, but that, you know, billboards or if a developer wants to add more stuff um, on top of it, uh, you have the right to decide, you know, uh, who who will and who won't. If there's a tree that has a branch extending over into your yard, you can cut it off at the property line. But, you know, right. so there is a little bit of this that is, you know, how much is FAA? How much is private property? Uh, in uh, 2015, about 700,000 drones were sold. So this is going to be a question that uh, has to be answered. I mean, it's this is something that goes back. It's interesting. When air travel first happened, you know, of course, when we didn't, you know, before that, it really wasn't a question. But the issue reached the Supreme Court in the 1940s, after a farmer brought a suit against the government over low-flying low military planes taking off and landing from a nearby airport. He said the planes had forced him out of the chicken business, because I guess they were upsetting the chickens, and so he wanted compensation, and the court gave it to him. Uh, and he said the property owner owns at least as much of the space above the ground as he can occupy or use in connection with the land. So there is something mm. sort of a... It didn't have a, you know, a certain uh, height... Specifically, but there is a um, there is something there where you uh, you you do own some of that uh, some of that uh, that space there. Don't want to get too much into it. Link will be in the show notes for this uh, at, because we have got so much listener feedback. So go ahead and uh, take a look at that, and uh, that is still kind of I think there's they're in the middle of uh, appeals and things like that. But it'll be an interesting uh, case to follow here. Well, that's an interesting thing for sure, and uh, man, I could see why with the day and age we live in with drones, why it's becoming more and more of an issue. I mean, I don't want my privacy invaded that way, and I'm sure most people feel the same way. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Doug. Let's uh, talk about the contest update. As we mentioned earlier, the contest is, uh, hey, nobody's died yet, but we do have a deadline for the contest because at some point we do expect some uh, some folks to meet their end. And if you want to get your prediction in, the deadline is now less than a week away. It uh, the, the entry deadline is when the next episode, Monday's episode, 
begins. If you don't have your submissions in by then, it is too late. Submissions will be locked at that point. So this is what we're asking you to do is send in your prediction who is going to live and who's going to die when the series is said and done. We're talking about Greer, Reese, Shaw, Finch, Root, Bear. Um, who else did we have? Control. Uh, I thought you had them all listed here, and I realized not. So now I'm going off the top of my head. <laughs> the Machine and Samaritan. That's all right. And is that it? I think we got them all. Yeah. Yeah. Ten total. So uh, if you think they're going to live, just tell us that they're going to live. If you think they're going to die, then as a tiebreaker, tell us what episode you think that they are going to die. And we'll do our little magic calculations and figure out who the winner is at the end of the season. The winner is going to get their choice of any season of Portion of Interest on either Blu-ray or DVD. Again, you get to choose. So get those in. You can submit those by uh, emailing us, uh, feedback at goldenspiralmedia.com, or you can submit it via our feedback page over at goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. You can also tweet them to us. Our uh, f- our Twitter handle is POIPodcastGSM, or you can uh, Facebook them to us, and our Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash person of interest gsm get him in yeah all right well let's get into the feedback that we got this week doug because uh, we got quite a bit and let's start out with the audio and let's start with barb hi daryl and doug this is barb calling in with feedback on this week's person of interest episodes i'll give six seven four one eight boats that don't lead to freedom and shot seeker eight Dead isn't dead, even when you do see the body. Wow. When this shove-it-down-your-throat season is over, I'm going to have to watch the epis again, taking the time to enjoy each one. These epis seem to be giving each one of our team members the chance to shine. We've seen Harold's angst about the machine, and we saw hints of the continuing differences between Harold and Root about how she should be reprogrammed. We've seen Reese believing that he has only one mission in life, And this week we saw Shaw's hard fight against her own Samaritan and Greer reprogramming efforts, as well as Fusco's loyalty and determination to discover the truth. I kept telling myself during Shaw's escape that this just wasn't right, that this wasn't real, and it wasn't, crushingly for Shaw, who has been fighting against her enemies for nine long months. Her loyalty to her team members has kept her from completely turning on them, through unimaginable torture and mind games. She's tougher than we thought. Now, I have her on my not-survive list, and with this mental damage to her brain, I'm not sure that she can survive. But I do like the idea that Root may actually have recorded a message for Shaw as Shaw recovers at the end of the series. I believe this theory was raised by one of our listeners last week. Let me tell you who you are, who we were, And honestly, I think that's a very solid theory. There were a number of interesting points made in these two epis. Samaritan clearly believes all its assets are disposable, including Greer, and he stated this many times himself. Rural domination by a single machine that wants to tell all humans what they should and shouldn't do and how they should and shouldn't live. Anyone who is a disruptor to that thought process is a threat and disappears or, quote-unquote, commits suicide. 
and a person can turn from an asset to a disruptor in the blink of an eye without even knowing it. Clearly, Samaritan is playing a god with no regard for free will and choice. It will control every aspect of their lives, including control over food production, and we saw that aspect of the machine last season. Third, although Samaritan can take people out, it can't stop people from asking questions and seeking answers. Ethan Garvin was determined to get to the truth, as is Fusco. Will people, rather than machines, finally take down Samaritan, people who are pursuing free will and choice? Will people such as the latest Samaritan asset who was looking for the file, uh, the one that Root got, will he begin to think about what he is doing and for whom he is working and exert his free will and choice to change his mind and help bring down Samaritan from within? What if our team convinces people to help rather than our machine doing it on its own? Now, that would be an ending we wouldn't see coming. And finally, Elias lives. I thought, who does that coffee mug belong to? And then I just dismissed the question. And I'm glad we got the answer at the end. Elias clearly knows about Samaritan and the danger it presents. He is trusting Team Machine to find a solution and is recovering and waiting patiently for that time. But will he go back to being in control and running organizations when Samaritan finally falls? Or will he be changed? and allowing people to live their own lives. For I believe that if he is alive right now, he will be alive at the end and ready to make a difference when our team is gone. It will probably be a promise to Finch before Finch's number is up for their friendship over the years. I could keep going, but you don't need a three-hour podcast. So thanks for all your work on this great show. This is Barb signing out, and wait. Was that sound a car backfiring or a gunshot? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think I this like is already the... going to be a three-hour podcast. Yeah, I think so. I like two things she said there. One was the um, what might be the final moments of Finch and how that might play out into Elias. I, I think that might just be a possibility. And then I loved what she said about it being human free will that ultimately takes down the machine where, where the machine, excuse me, Samaritan, where the machine isn't able to. I think that's a fantastic idea. And, and, and very much a, would be a very hopeful idea too. You know, if, 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 if the machine, if, if the Samaritan was taken down by human free will and not this ASI, there would be a certain degree of satisfaction to that, I think. Humanity prevails. I, I, I like how that would, yeah, would end up uh, very philosophical. I enjoy that. But I, I do, I agree with you that that would be, if it was just one AI taking down another AI, it, 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 it misses the, uh, the heart of the, uh, of the series, which is while the machine is a character and Samaritan is a character, it's really about the people and how they deal with kind of the fatalistic aspect of this all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Excellent, Barb. We have one more audio. This one comes in from Bonita. Here she is. Hey, guys. This is Bonita in Atlanta, Yoga Bon, uh, calling for the Person of Interest podcast. Um, I uh, just was just listening to your podcast and wanted to make a note that even though the machine said 2015, it's quite possible that that is still in our past because they started off the season with the voiceover kind of suggesting that what the events we were seeing part of the season might be in the past. So I just want to put that out there. That might be the reason that it said 2015, although I did notice it too. 
And it may be that we still have more story to tell that is going to take us into 2016. Possibly. Just want to throw that out there. You guys are doing a great job. I love the show. love the podcast. Uh, looking forward to hearing more. Take care. Bye. Yeah, that's a possibility. And, of course, time, you know, nine months at least since Shaw has been gone. So we don't always know, understand the passage of time exactly how it is on the timeline of the show. So she's right. Okay, we have a lot of uh, feedback to read for you. Yes. We got something here from Lisa L. And she says, hi, Doug slash Daryl. And that's, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> um, she says, I'm a newcomer to the podcast just in time for the final season of POI. Thank you. Glad to have you. But I have been a longtime fan of the show. Love listening to your thoughts each week, as well as other listeners' feedback. These first few episodes have really gotten my brain buzzing with some ideas, so I thought I'd chip in my two cents for predictions on how the series might finally come to an end. And so don't forget to get your, you know, your episode numbers in here, Lisa. Uh, since the introduction of Samaritan and the ensuing battle between it and the machine, I've always gotten a strong Magneto versus Professor X vibe from their colossal matchup. This sparked much of my theory because so much of what makes that a great dynamic is the difference in perspective, but not necessarily vision. So my theory is that this show ends with Team Machine realizing that neither AI can be destroyed, but only one can exist and operate peacefully, which means the other must somehow be contained. This will eventually connect back to Root's voiceover monologue in the beginning. I think that the machine will win out in the final battle with Harold having to finally, fully let go and let his creation fulfill its true purpose. Team Machine defeats Team Greer with the help of Control. Greer dies at the hands of Control. I like that. Control goes back to being in charge of the relevant numbers with the machine as a voluntarily closed system. Hmm. They will only get numbers, and then they have to investigate the way Team Machine used to. Samaritan gets boxed, Magneto being put into his glass prison. For now. John dies in a final epic battle scene where he sacrifices himself to save the rest of the team. Watching him walk away from Iris this week confirmed for me that I think Reese will be the one to die. He wants to believe he could have a normal life, but honestly, he doesn't believe that. And neither do I. That's the tragedy of John Reese as the hero figure. He will never get a happy ending. He was always meant to be the martyr that goes down fighting in the end in order to save everyone else. It's his only true chance to atone for his earlier life choices, because I don't think even John believes anything else would be enough. Root and Shaw survive, with Bear, and go back to working the irrelevant numbers with the machine as an open system. They finally tell Fusco the truth about the machine and continue to use his help behind the scenes. Root makes a promise to Harold to always be aware of the potential danger of where the future could lead with the machine, so she and Shaw... Continue to fight the good fight and keep checks and balances with control to try to avoid repeating history's mistakes. That leaves us with Harold Finch. I think Harold will have to say goodbye to the machine and end all of their interactions. Finch created the machine, he's her father, and they've had a complicated past, but he has to put in but he has put in his time teaching her, most of the time being too overprotective for his own good. He spent enough of his life trying to protect us from her, her from herself, and then her from us, even when there was a disagreement on what protecting her really meant. So they have to say goodbye, and the machine creates a completely new and completely protected identity for Harold, where he can finally, safely, reunite with Grace. He never sees or hears from Team Machine again. The last scene of the show goes back to Root's monologue. Samaritan is contained and has its memory erased, but finds a way out onto a single computer locked away somewhere unknown. 
We get that final red light scene as Root's voice recording plays and echoes through the room. Root is talking to Samaritan because she knows that someday Samaritan will escape and resurface. She, so she leaves Samaritan with an account of their story and history with hopes that it can finally have the chance to learn about and from its predecessor the way it never got the opportunity to before. So when Samaritan gets out, there's at least the possibility that it'll be a different Samaritan than the one we knew. But ultimately, that's all left to the future and the unknown. I realize a lot of this seems like a fairly optimistic way of wrapping up all the storylines. I actually have an alternate darker theory that is similar, but where Samaritan wins. The machine is contained with all its memories erased again. All of Team Machine gets killed, and the only thing left to hope for is the machine's blinking cursor popping up in that remote room as Root's voice starts to teach the machine from the beginning who they were and who it was, with a chance it might one day be able to fight back. The show has always walked that fine line, looking toward the future and technology with a mixture of fear and awe. This is best seen in contrast between Finch and Root and how they view and interact with the machine differently. I'm an optimist, so maybe I hope for this show to end more on a Root note, looking towards our future with the machine with awe and possibility. But it could always end in a very dark way, with all of Finch's worst fears coming true and leaving us with the potential end of humanity on the horizon. Honestly, I could see it going either way. Then again, this show has always been good at surprising me, so I imagine it will end in some way I could not have predicted. Only time will tell. Thanks for doing the podcast each week. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you, Lisa. I like those possible endings. Uh, you know, yeah. The description there, that's amazing. All right. Well, thank you, Lisa. Uh, let's move in here to some uh, feedback we got from Daryl Washington. Great name, by the way, although he spells it wrong, but... That's not his fault. <laughs> uh, loved the episode, but found it very confusing. This is talking about the episode 6741. Uh, found it very confusing until I learned at the end, the entire thing was assimilation. The title echoes back to if then else, but I didn't connect the dots until I saw someone comment the same writer pinned both episodes. Incredible pieces of acting by the cast, especially Amy and Sarah. We have missed her greatly. Anyone saying that the characters feel off has to remember that this is how Shaw sees them, if anyone is of that opinion. That's true. 6,741 simulations, and Greer and Samaritan are no closer to their goal. And that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, it's 10 billion to zero, but it's also 6,741 6, to zero. So that's, you know, interesting. What it is. Sorry, that was me interjecting. Back to the other Daryl, my, my brother from another mother uh that shows a dedication of shaw to her friends that is simply astronomical and that's a dedication evil beings like greer and samaritan could never understand yeah that's excellent excellent stuff 6741 to zero i like that Mm -hmm. Team Yellowbox, talking about 6741 said it's hard to believe we both make it out of this alive that's a quote from the episode but here's hoping they do Definitely an edge-of-your-seat episode. I'm bummed the shoot-intimate moments weren't real, but hopefully they'll be able to have those moments be made real before the final. The gunshot ending I could do without. I have to say the promo for next week being aired during the episode instead of afterwards uh -huh, definitely spoiled the reveal by showing that John was alive before Shaw shot him when the episode returned from commercials. Well, that was a bummer, live viewing-wise. The glitches were enough to question the events, but not enough to confirm it. 
But that did, and it took the surprise out of the ending. It was a, still an amazing episode, but that early promo airing definitely affected the otherwise tense ending. Because of that, I'm forced to give two ratings, and we mentioned these earlier. 10 out of 10 for the actual um, episode, and uh, 9.5 for spoiling the live viewing. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah. And uh, the other other Andrew, Andrew R., <laughs> says... Uh, <laughs> About 6741. Hey, Double Ds. Oh, the shippers must be partly upset as shoot was only another different possible scenarios episode. I'm sure I felt a drop in cold water pressure in North America after that scene. Uh, hmm. Damn CBS for doing a spoiler promo for the next episode in the middle of Reese's death scene. Yeah, another one about that. That seems to be a common theme here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a big deal. Alrighty. Yeah, I, I gotta think about that a little more. Okay. The writers have got it figured out. Now we gotta get the commercial uh, guys uh, figured out here. Yeah. Okay, Dotch, Doc H. Uh, speaking about 6741, he says, Hi, Doug and um, uh, Millhouse. <laughs> I'll take it. How you guys doing? I have to say, Monday night's episode did not do much to move the myth arc along. We did get all what we expected. Shaw's alive. Cool. But we never got beyond the walls of Greer's evil lair. So I went and read through the transcripts half a dozen times to see if anything jumped out at me from inside the mind of Samin as the the ruse to program her continued. About a minute in, we get a quote from Greer. Ms. Shaw has killed six of my men in the last nine months. And then almost three-quarters of the way through, we landed on the Shaw quote, you had me strapped to a bed for nine months. I think this pretty much establishes that Samaritan has been chipping away at Samin for nine months, which places the active narrative in October of 2015, nine months after Shaw's capture. So the Daryl math from last week, where, it, where the graphic says 2015 versus 2016, is not a continuity error per se. It's just that we're watching a saga that took place about six months ago. Think of it as a rerun, a rerun that never aired. <laughs> by the way, sixty. Yeah, there you go. By the way, sixty-seven forty-one divided by nine months equals about twenty-four point nine simulations per day. Greer surviving his fatal headshot, an extra hour in this simulation, suggests that probably most of those earlier simulations were only minutes long, where Shaw tapped out before any of her extrapolation hanky panky, like assassinating Reese, for example. The hypno flash VR glasses gave the whole psych manipulation affair away about five minutes in we see them place the glasses on shaw then she escapes the island law style as if she'd never had them on we see the glasses again only when she ends the simulated simulation run with the suicide and they begin prepping for the next iteration this felt more like a fringe episode than poi so we got lost and we got fringe Shaw was obviously on an e-ticket ride in walt bishop world orlando okay e-ticket Google it for those of you who are, you know, 30 and under. Maybe 40 and under, I don't know. <laughs> but I like this uh, I like this way he says this here. An e-ticket ride in Walt Bishop World Orlando with a Peter Bishop observer neck tech implant guiding her through multidimensional experiences. The only thing missing was the Olivia Dunham sensory deprivation tank log ride <laughs> that should have plopped Shaw square in the middle of her challenging childhood. Oh, wait, we did see some of her childhood, just... Not with an animated William Bell sharing sentient custody, <laughs> a.k.a. a soul magnet. Oh, soul man. magnet! Um, <laughs> I've I forgotten to. about soul magnets. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, about Shotseeker, this is a great procedural, great standalone, and great overall serial episode. Shotseeker will certainly land in my overall top 20. So many big questions come to mind. Number one, will the new guy with the savant talent for hearing recur in the next half dozen episodes as a solution to the Samaritan menace facing Team Machine? Number two, Will Root and Harold contribute to or detract from the machine's efforts now that Finch has granted Ms. Groves access to the servers while sitting at a terminal directly beside him? Their dialogue and ethics in this episode was one of the best of any dialogues in all five seasons, like you two bubbas in your last podcast. Thank you very much. Number three. Will Fusco's relative anonymity and or bravado in defying Harold's request for temperance ultimately lead to Fusco's demise or a compromise of Team Machine? <sighs> Number four, what role will Elias and or Bruce play in the saga as the final chapter of POI unfolds? I have one major speculation. I think we are seeing episodes paired deliberately on consecutive nights as paralleled foreshadowing. A week earlier, it was all about Reese. This week, we see Shaw continuing to defeat Samaritan after thousands of attempts to compromise her psychological orientation. The next night, we've seen Samaritan defeat the machine in billions of attempts to compromise the evil AI. My speculation is that we ultimately see the machine make a crack in Samaritan's armor, and that is what saves Shaw. Then the machine, the machine sees Shaw in what Samaritan has been looking at for nine months. The machine then adopts the qualities, skills, and characteristics Shaw possesses Concepts Harold denied it, and together the machine becomes the Shaw-like warrior it needs to be to squash Samaritan permanently. Does Shaw live? Maybe yes, maybe no. Does one or more of the factors I mentioned earlier play into the final solution? Will Shaw be able to listen to both AIs in her neck implants? My one additional minor speculation is also a fringe comparison. The first few minutes of the abbreviated final season actually started with us watching the first few minutes of the final episode of the series, Olivia, Peter, and Etta playing in the park. We got the premiere episode of season five with the Root voiceover. Maybe that was the ending of the series, a la Fringe. Just so long as Vincent, or Bear, the dog, doesn't lay down beside us as we die. I think the series will end well. So, cheers from Doc H, who... Says he's, uh, he's also known as 6743 background actor. The casting director said I might get kneecapped. The episode director said they might have Shaw ripped my shirt off so the buttons go everywhere. Either one. Fine with me. <laughs> Thank you very much, Doc. A great, uh, a great take on all of this. It is a great take. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move on to Andrew Jeeves. He says, hi, Daryl and Doug. I saw the episode 6741 on Sunday as it aired on Sunday in Canada. Shot Seeker, I was watching on Tuesday while also watching the NBA Conference Finals at the same time. Multitasking at its finest. <laughs> uh, that means he was watching the Eastern Conference Finals, which are fine, but not nearly as entertaining as the Western Conference Finals that I might be biased towards. <clears throat> uh, he says, I'll admit straight up, I did not enjoy 6741 as some of the others do, except for my fellow Canadian, Zachary Chong. It felt like it was poorly written and that it was extremely obvious something was wrong when these whiteouts happened. Also, that they never showed her going back to the subway showed that something was up. The only thing I liked about the episode was Shaw killing Greer and hearing that she killed him in the previous simulations was... Oh, so very satisfying. Shot Seeker, 
I enjoyed, especially with Finch, setting up simulations of battles between Samaritan and the machine, but it puzzles me if Samaritan can beat the machine 10 billion times, then why is it afraid of the machine at all when it could have destroyed it early on? There must be a weakness to exploit in Samaritan in order to win the war at the end. I also was not surprised at the revelation that Elias is alive and his death was faked, as a few later promo pics I saw kind of spoiled that he was alive. And I theorized that he had faked his death before the season began. But I wonder, how did Fusco get him to that safe house in time to meet Finch and Reese, when at that time they were on the run trying to get back to the subway in one piece with the machine, and Fusco was busy trying to get back to the precinct? That's a good, solid question right there. Yeah. We're going to hand wave and move along. (laughs) That one probably. (laughs) He goes on to say, but... Uh, but what was Samaritan doing in Shot Seeker besides watching everyone? Well, in the words of Matt Fowler of IGN, it was, oh, you know, the usual manipulation of technologies, murder, framing others for said murder. As Fesco mentioned, homicides were down, but suspicious suicides and vanishings were in abundance. And while the Harvesta, POIs standard for ConAgra, uh, his CEO was suitably slimy, and had a perfect patsy for the murderer of a young scientist determined to help feed the world, it was all Samaritan. It deemed her research too dangerous. I wonder why does it think that the research is dangerous? Does Samaritan want or need people to starve? Or did it see a hidden danger within the science that no one else noticed? Or is it, as Finch said in Season fours, its solution to world hunger is to kill a quarter of the world's population? And then he gave us a link for science in the news. Thank you very much. And he says, anyways, I'll talk to you guys next week. Carry on, my wayward hosts. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Where should we sing that line? Carry on, my wayward hosts. How's that? Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, surveillance in the news link. If I can get other people to do those for me, all the better. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Andrew B- About 6741, he says, I'm not sure if this is among my favorite episodes, although I guess the way it brings out my squeamishness may be the only case against that designation. What I'm sure of is that this is easily among the show's most powerful episodes, and has stuck in my mind to such an extent that I wouldn't have minded Shotseeker being delayed a day. A setup like this can end up as unessential mystery, and I think some criticism of the episode may stem from that. But this is a virtual reality rather than a simulation fully run by Samaritan, in contrast to If Then Else. Shaw is very much present in it, and once I registered that, I noticed more tonal fluctuations in the episode. The bizarre contest between Shaw and Samaritan is very thought-provoking. I love how we're immersed in her perspective, how the camera seems more like a participant than an observer. Now, I'm not a fan of sex scenes, but I actually like this one. It works narratively, given the development of Root and Shaw, both individually and together. For want of a less crude description, it works as a symbolic stripping, in that Shaw is more open after that point. In hindsight, it's part of showing a space in which Shaw is more emotional and vulnerable. The subsequent pillow talk is my current favorite scene for its home-like grounding amidst all the craziness, and I think the safe place line ties back to it. Speaking of which, the final simulated scene is beautifully done, making this only the third episode of any show to bring me to tears in the first viewing. Amazing work by Sarah Shahi, Amy Acker, Denise Tay, and Lucas O'Connor. 
it's appropriate that the writers here are the ones who wrote If Then Else and MIA, respectively. About Shotseeker, I think this is a great episode and a smart move employing a more street-level vibe and several plot threads after the hyper-focus on Shaw, much as Control-Alt-Delete, also written by Andy Callahan, flipped the script after If Then Else. It's cool to see the characters coordinated in working the number and how different plot elements can end up affecting one another. Fusco's the single biggest standout, and it's great to see him in the thick of things and stepping up the way he is now. Of course, it's also concerning, and it could just be a matter of time before Samaritan targets him. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's true. All right. Next one comes in from Todd Schwartzberg. Says, uh, I generally liked the episode talking about Shot Seeker. Really glad the last episode ended on a plus, even though it was a retread of something last season when our machine was running a simulation to get our team out of Samaritan's basement. So glad it was just virtual reality. Only thing is, I got a definite War Games vibe. Maybe that's why our machine is letting herself get shut out. She's trying not to play. Too bad Samaritan mm. isn't learning that. With the Faraday Cage simulation battles, I mean. Kind of side with Root. Gotta allow the machine to defend herself a little. And I'm psyched to see how this will play out. Shall we play a game? <laughs> okay, and finally. Wow. What a listener feedback day. Team Yellowbox uh, writing about Shotseeker. Yet more great Root Herald scenes in this episode. If anyone should recode the machine, it should be the machine. Anyone else think we'll see Root helping Machine do that, despite how Harold feels? I have to say, while Elias is a great character in the world, it seems highly unlikely he would survive being shot like he was and drugged back to the safe house just to have John and Harold work on him, even though neither is a doctor. Sure, they have some field training, but enough to save Elias. And when exactly did they have time to perform this surgery? Weren't John and Harold busy trying to save the Machine when Elias was shot? It wasn't exactly a quick rescue. Yeah, it's, it's, somebody else has noticed that, too. Mm -hmm. We'll see what Elias does this season, but as of right now, I'm not crazy over his return. It would have been also nice to have an idea of why Samaritan wanted the second serving's research. It didn't have to be the full answer yet, but just an idea of why, given it was deemed important to so many. Yes, that is interesting, and, and uh, uh, I will be very interested to see if this really does come back. Like I said, I think uh, we're going to see Krupa, so I think this uh, this definitely comes back. Yeah, I do too. I don't know if the research comes back, but I definitely think Krupa comes back. And I think that there is enough, even though I gave somewhat of a, a possible explanation earlier in our episode, I don't know that I, that was even satisfactory to me. And so, yeah, we'll see. I think she definitely comes back. I'm just not a, I'm not sure about her research, but definitely unanswered questions for sure. Lots of great feedback this week. You guys are really rocking it. I know that the turnaround on feedback, particularly for the Tuesday episode, is incredibly tough. And mm -hmm. honestly, it's tough for us, too, to, to try to get all this together, try to get our thoughts assimilated and, and record. Um, but the Wednesday recording this season was just the way that it had to be done. So we appreciate all of you who are, uh, are sending in contributions. We know there's a lot more of you out there who would like to and can't. And... Um, yeah, I don't know what else can be done about that, but we, we do appreciate it very much. If you want to send in your feedback for next week's episodes, there are three of them next week. Boy, um, that information is feedback at goldenspiralmedia.com, goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. 
304-837-2278. Follow us on Twitter at POI Podcast GSM. And uh, follow us over on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash person of interest GSM. Lots of good conversation happening during the episode and after the episodes over there on the Facebook page. And that deadline for sending in feedback is Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay, this is the spoilery section here. We've, uh, we're going to give you a little bit of information about what's coming up uh, next week. Like uh, Daryl said, three episodes. Monday night at 10, Tuesday night at 9 and 10. Stand back. Uh, the first of these on Monday night is called A More Perfect Union. The machine sends Reese and Finch to a wedding to protect a pair of POIs before their nuptials. Also, Fusco becomes angry at being kept in the dark by the team and takes it upon himself to investigate a string of missing person reports. So we're going to see a little bit about the whole missing person thing. I like this. This We're really moving along here. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're going to have uh, the usual cast, but we're also having John Nolan as Greer. We're having Bruce Moran back and uh, Gabriel. I don't recall who that is, but I'm sure we've seen Gabriel before. And uh, of the guest cast, be looking for Dan Puck. Dan Puck will be the beefcake uni in this uh, episode. Just, you know, so keep an eye out for him. (laughs) It's written by Melissa Scrivener Love, who's done POI stuff before, directed by Ulrich Riley. Doug, I just looked up Gabriel. We both should feel silly. That is the the boy who spoke on behalf of Samaritan. Samaritan. Oh, 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 that's great. I yeah. love that character. Yeah, so oh, Samaritan's man. back next week. Oh, that's classic. Okay, great, yeah. great, great. Yeah. Uh, the next episode will be Tuesday at 9 p.m. It's called QSO. We talked a bit about that in the preseason episode, our podcast episode, where QSO is kind of a ham radio thing for an initial contact uh, between ham radio operators. In this one, Root goes undercover at a radio station, bada-bing, to protect the host of a conspiracy theory show who stumbles upon information that could get him killed. The B story will be Samaritan agents are trying to convince a member of the team that their goals are noble. Samaritan's goals are noble, I suppose, so I believe that's where Samaritan's going to show up. And uh, we have the usual crowd in that. We're going to have Lambert back as the recurring cast. And Mm -hmm. don't forget to look for Edward Chin Lin as the ghost hunter. There you are. <laughs> Written by Hilary Benefiel and directed by Kate Woods. And immediately following that, on Tuesday at 10 p.m., reassortment. Reese and Finch become trapped in a hospital that has become ground zero for a deadly viral outbreak. Also, Samaritan's newest recruit has second thoughts, and Shaw continues to struggle with reality on person of interest. And we're going to have Elias back in that, Lambert, Jeff Blackwell, and Mona. And as a guest cast, don't forget, Leah Giotto Robinson will be orderly number one. Keep an eye out for Leah Giotto. Written by Tony Camerino and directed by Kenneth Fink. So that's a lot of stuff to, uh, we're going to be writing like crazy on uh, Monday and Tuesday, and you all are going to have to be 
feedbacking like crazy. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, next week's episode will be a doozy. So block off some extra time on your podcast listening schedule because I'm sure next week's will be even a little bit longer. Well, it will be. I mean, we're going to be talking about three episodes. So Doug and I may not be able to talk for the rest of the week after we get through talking about three back-to-back-to-back <laughs> episodes of POI. And uh, But anyway, get your ears ready. <laughs> we'll have plenty to discuss. Send that feedback in. Once again, 304-837-2278, goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. And that, my friends, is going to uh, bring us to the end, the conclusion of this week's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We do appreciate it. And uh, I just want to say that uh, I'm Daryl, and uh, I'm going to get back to my own simulation test because I'm trying to come up with a scenario where Doug doesn't kill me during our final episode. I have you in uh, episode 30, I think. <laughs> and I'm Doug saying that if your number comes up, we hope there's an actual, real man in a suit listening out for you. <laughs> <laughs>